where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. So our scripture lesson this morning is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount. And honestly, when you read through this whole sermon, you're like, wow, they were up there for a long time. I mean, I've never been at the top of a mountain for very long because it always gets so cold. But here they were still sitting through it. And the lessons don't get easier. Here's a tough one. It's called love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I've got two stories this morning to share with you about how to love your enemies. And in both stories, I want to ask you to pay particular attention to the role of distance and proximity. It's cute, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost worth having someone be mad at you so that they can invite you over for pie. Um, the second story, though, is about an enemy situation that was much more difficult, and it was even dangerous. And this situation required an intentional process of community commitment and participation. It's a true story that took place in Durham, North Carolina in 1971. And there was a book uh, written about it in 2007 and a movie that came out in 2019. They both have the same title, The Best of Enemies. It's a story about Anne Atwater, whose nickname is Roughhouse Annie. Anne is a, was, uh, both of these people are deceased now, Anne was a black woman who was committed to anti-poverty, civil rights activism, and community organizing. The other person is C.P. Ellis. C.P. Ellis is a white man who was president of the local KKK group. You get how serious this is. The stage is set with Anne and another woman who are before this person trying to get on the council agenda for the night. And she's insisting that there's a landlord who is not tending to the needs of the tenants. And this is a situation of like water that's no hot water or sewers that are not flushing. Um, and it was a serious situation, and there had been many letters written and many times that Anne had gone before these folks trying to get some, some change. And so, because it was an election year, we learned that the person who was in the next room 
comes in and says, you know, we'll get you on the agenda, no worries. And that sort of takes the heat out of that moment, but then Annie knows that she needs to organize everyone and get them to the meeting. Well, the person who came in and said, you'll be in the meeting also started organizing. And so we have the city official going to CPLs and saying, we need people at this meeting tonight because we know it's gonna be filled with Annie and her people. So it's just like uh, some of our televised moments in our nation's history where we have a clear center aisle and we have one group on one side and another group on the other side and never the twain shall meet. That's what it looks like. And what happens in this meeting is that um, letters in hand, witnesses on site, the city council decides to ignore the code violations and grant another extension to look into the matter. You know that phrase, right? Let's put it off. For 90 days, 90 days for people now without hot running water and without a sewer line that's working. It's clear from the beginning that the poverty issues are thick. Now, you've probably heard of the Celtic tradition of thin places, you know, where it feels like the line between heaven and earth is so thin that, that you feel like you're in both places at once. Well, I want to introduce you to thick places. It's actually the opposite. It's hard to tell if there's a heaven because you're stuck in this earthly place that feels like a tremendous roadblock. It's a thick place of brick upon brick of collusion and cooperation in support of the wealthy landlords. And it's held together by the belief that black and brown families are inferior. There's even local laws and violent practices used to reinforce the belief. There was economic rewards for colluding and violent intimidation towards those who would not comply. It's thick. It's dangerous. The turning point in this story was a fire in one of the black schools. And it forced the question of school integration. Where are these children going to go to school now? As you can imagine, there were some people that didn't want school integration, and others who said, well, then where are they going to go to school? And it was hinging on a decision of like, well, they can just go back to the school where the fire just was even though it was still smoldering and there was still the smell of smoke. And most of the school was not accessible. You couldn't go in it safely. Because of this quandary, because of the decision that was made by the council that said, just send them back to their school, let them do half shifts, and we'll even extend it into the summer if we have to, um, Bill Riddick, was called in. Now that's a real person. And he was the facilitator of what was called a charrette, 
A charrette may not be a word that you're familiar with, but it's a sequence of meetings in which stakeholders attempt to resolve conflicts and map solutions. And the conflict was around school integration. Anne and CP were selected as co-chairs of this 10-day charrette, and each represented opposing sides. They were enemies. Five others were selected to represent the community with the stipulation that they could not be part of the Klan or any black power groups. So Anne couldn't pick her five, and CP couldn't either. The culmination of the process would be voting on binding resolutions that would only pass with two-thirds a vote, two-thirds of a margin. So that's eight votes out of 12 people. And throughout those 10 days, there was arguing, there was listening, there was forced eating at the same table. Everyone was set up at different tables with name tags. You couldn't move the name tags and you couldn't talk about the issue on the table. And toward the end, they even took a field trip. They all got on a bus and took a field trip to see the school where the fire took place. It's worth seeing the movie to see the final scene. So I'm not going to give you a spoiler alert on that. But I will tell you that both stories demonstrate the role of distance and proximity in having an enemy. Remember the recipe from Enemy Pie? In order for this to work, you have to spend the day together. No more distance. You might also remember that when the young boy went to his enemy's home, he felt uncomfortable. He was nervous. He was afraid. Remember also that discomfort is a growing edge. It's not a place to avoid in these situations. Because he was willing to still knock on the door even though he was afraid, the day was able to unfold. Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, says that proximity dismantles the barriers, burdens, and biases that separate us from others. And even in the much more complex situation, Brian's words prove to be true. The intentional shared space and charrette process began to chip away at the thick places chip away at the mortar that held the bricks in place, and the bricks began to fall away. Not for everyone, but for both Anne and CP. They became lifelong friends. They were friends till the end of their life, and Anne even delivered the eulogy at his funeral. In one instance, CP and Anne and a bunch of people in the charrette were in the hallway moving into another room, and Anne's daughter was there. 
She was one of the people, one of the students that attended this school. And CP said, he looked at her and said, oh, is that your daughter? And Anne said, yes, it is. And she introduced her daughter and said to her daughter, this is CP Ellis. And the girl's entire demeanor changed. So much so that even CP noticed. And when he went home that day, he was recounting the story to his wife. And he said to her, she looked at me like I was a monster. And this is a gift because his wife said, what did you expect? That tugged at him. In the right moment, people can be in our lives to say just the right things, can't they? You'll notice in the first story, Jeremy's dad didn't collude with him. He just said, oh, I understand enemies, and I have a recipe, fastest way to get rid of them. CP's wife didn't collude with him. She said, what did you expect? And then Anne was also in a, a different hallway. Now, at the end of the meeting, there were some, I would say, teenage to young adult men who were disrupting an information table that had information about the Klan. There was a compromise situation where the meetings ended with gospel music, and as a compromise um, to allow for that, because it was, it was not seen as everybody's music, C.P. Ellis asked for an information table about the Klan. And so the convener of the charrette allowed it. It seems absurd, but listen to this lesson. So the boys walked by and they knocked some of the papers off the table and they took the uniform and they disheveled it. And she went up and she said, you boys need to pick that up and put this back because this information right here is important. You need to read this stuff. You need to understand where they're coming from and then you'll know how to approach it. You need to understand your enemy. And so as Anne was putting the table back and putting the, the uniform back, which I'm sure is, is such a hard image to imagine, and, and in this scene, you could tell that she's truly haunted when she looks into, those, into that headgear. She's truly haunted. But what she doesn't know is that CP was watching her. And that was another moment where you could just hear the chisel of the mortar starting to crumble. Because you know, mortar and bricks, they're really just sand, aren't they? <laughs> they're sand that are compressed and put in the fire. But they can also crumble, and they do in time. 
The author Madeline L'Engle says, it's a human tendency to draw together when a common enemy can be found. If there's no real enemy or if the real enemy is too fearful to be faced, then one has to be made up. Making one up frightens me more than the real enemy, she says. I gotta say that frightens me too and leads me to wonder how many times I've been co-opted into this common enemy tactic through fear and misinformation. Distance allows that, doesn't it? The fear and misinformation is enabled and unchallenged by distance. When you get close, it's a different story. Think of how many things we have formed opinions on or been sort of uh, co-opted into forming opinions upon, opinions about, with information that we have no real way of knowing. Have you ever traveled to another country and disclosed that you are an American citizen and have someone say, oh, you must. Don't all Americans? That's when we become the enemy. It goes both ways. There's also a psychological aspect to enemies to be aware of. Enemies can give us comfort in the face of uncertainty, allowing us to attribute bad things to a clear cause that can be understood, contained, or controlled. You can see how that happens, can't you? Rather than sit with discomfort, which is a growing edge, to bundle it all up and to put it somewhere else. It eases the mind to think that there's an enemy. Denigrating an enemy can also boost our self-esteem, leaving us to seem better than the other. I mean, that's... I'm sure that's easy to understand too, right? If we put others down, we falsely elevate ourselves. So I want to invite you to join me in what I've been reflecting on all week and ask you to reflect on it this coming week. Take some time today or this week to notice the role distance and proximity plays in your life. While you might not use the word enemy, these matters where you keep your distance is it a matter of hurt feelings or social awkwardness like the young boy? Is it something can be bridged with time together in a pie? Or a beer? Or iced tea? Or is it a thick matter with bricks and mortar that will take a community-wide concerted effort? In either situation, is your next step going to be toward or away from the one who is labeled an enemy? And if you're committed to following the teachings of Jesus or just giving them a try, the next step needs to be towards. Bell Hooks says, the moment we choose to love, we begin to move towards freedom, to act in ways that liberate ourselves and others.
No one is free in a place where there are enemies. No one. Doesn't matter which side you're on. As long as you're part of the equation, we are not free. Let's continue to consider distance and proximity as we move toward the table, which is also a step toward choosing love.